I hope you've been following us the last couple of weeks where we've been talking about how we can be rooted, how we can grow deep, and how we can live strong. Last weekend, we talked about the big story, the narrative that runs from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, and we looked at an incredibly tall post oak tree. It's probably the tallest in the world, and it's only a mile and a half from our church. Now, this week, I'm coming to you from my backyard, and I want to share with you a plant that you've probably seen and played with, and if you take good care of your yard, you may not have many of them. I have a bunch of them in my yard, as you can probably see. We like lots of colors in our grass. It's the dandelion, and they are fun to look at, but they are hard to get rid of. Now, these dandelions just demonstrate one of the ways that nature tries to propagate, how it spreads out and how it grows, because even nature tries to expand. Now, I have a beautiful black maple tree in my backyard, and it has these incredible helicopter seeds that will fall, and as uh, the seasons change and as the wind blows, they, they can blow uh, for miles. Now, interestingly, this little dandelion uh, starts off as a flower and eventually grows these seeds that it will spread out as the wind blows. A single dandelion can grow up to 170 seeds at a time. In the span of a year, it will probably produce somewhere around 2,000 seeds. And if you had an acre of land filled with dandelions, they would probably produce somewhere around 240 million seeds per year. That's a lot of seeds. Now, these interesting little plants, they will grow to be about 12 inches tall. But if you've ever tried to get rid of them by pulling them up or mowing them over with your mower, you'll notice they come right back because their roots continue to grow deep and they can grow up to 18 inches below the surface of the ground. So if you pull one up, it's probably just going to pop right back up after a few days. Now, it will go through several cycles of growing these seeds with these helicopter-like attachments to them. And when a strong wind comes, it picks them up off of the stem and they can blow for around five miles. It's pretty amazing how far they can go. Now, you've probably done that as a kid. They are a lot of fun to watch. Let's see if I can make this one take off. And they're gone. Up to 170 seeds are now spreading around my yard, and they will probably germinate, and I'll have more dandelions. You know, this is a, a beautiful picture of what it looks like to watch the good news spread, just like these dandelion seeds or the helicopter seeds from the maple in my backyard. Jesus wants the gospel to spread. Paul, interestingly, said in his letter to the Romans, he said, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now, Paul didn't make that up. He actually was quoting the prophet Isaiah, who said this before Jesus was ever born. Isaiah said, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, 
your God reigns. Nahum said this. He said, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Now, as we read these verses, really causes some interesting questions to come to mind. And one of those is, what exactly is this good news? What does it look like if this thread, this story that runs from the beginning to the end of the Bible is true? What does it mean to spread this good news? Now, we in a culture after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus believe it's the gospel. And the gospel literally means the good news. But is that what Nahum meant? Is that what Isaiah meant? Because that's who Paul was quoting. So if they were talking about spreading the good news, even before Jesus was born, what was he saying? Perhaps if we understand these passages, we might understand how a person comes to a deep-rooted faith, how they come to a place where they can grow deep and they can live strong. So I hope that whatever you're doing this weekend, that you'll choose to join us online or in person And I hope that you'll invite someone to join you as well. We are on a search to be rooted, to grow deep, and to live strong. All right. We could have brought a bunch of dandelions in here, but that would have been a little messy. It would have been fun to give the kids, and they would have had a blast for about 2.3 seconds. But we didn't do that. Um, I just, before I move on with that question, what is this good news? I'm just so happy to see so many of these kids. And uh, this is a weekend that a lot of people are traveling and doing different things. It's Memorial Day weekend. It's the weekend that just as we sing about freedom that we have in Christ, we also have freedom in our nation because of the sacrifice of many in the armed services who've given their life for that freedom. That's what Memorial Day is about. And so this weekend we're celebrating, we celebrate the freedom Christ brings us every day, but we're also celebrating the freedom we have in this nation for those who have given their lives. But uh, I told Deidre, I said, well, I don't know how many kids will be here, and so let me just give you an update on our kids' ministry and where we are, and we have two things coming up. Um, we are so glad you're here. This is the fifth Sunday of the month. We have uh, we have volunteers to do full kids' ministry for babies through second grade now for four weeks a month. We have five weeks this month. And rather than doing everything we can to make sure we have uh, volunteers, we've decided we're going to bring kids in here if we don't have volunteers for a week, which we only have. There's only three or four fifth Sundays in the, in the year. Um, So we are committed to that because we want to be a church that is a family and and we're not just program heavy, but we are actually moving forward together, which means kids laying on the floor coloring paper in here is absolutely acceptable and wanted. Now, where are we headed with kids ministry? Uh, If you have a child who is uh, babies through fifth grade, uh, we do have the online resources that you can use at home. Uh, we are meeting on the first Sunday morning of every month. We have, we'll have a, like a light breakfast and child care available for parents to come. Hear about this uh, month's uh, curriculum and ways that you can disciple your kids at home. We are also doing activities once a month where we bring all of you together and we get families together. Last month we went to Vandergriff Park and we had a good time playing there. 
in June, on June 12th, we are going to be going on a hike through the Saudi Gulf. If you've never been up there, it's a beautiful uh, little easy hike that you can walk through there. Bring your kids. If you want to swim, you can get in the creek. Kids can splash around, or it's not real deep, but uh, it's, a, it's a great place for us to get together. We're doing these activities just so parents can encourage one another, learn from each other, and build relationships with each other again. So coffee and conversation is that Sunday morning time for parents to get together. Um, that's going to be on June 6th. And then we're going to go together to Big Saudi Gulf. That's a Saturday this time at 1030. We're going to meet up there. We're going to go on a hike and, and play in the water. So we hope that you'll join us. Um, and then uh, our next phase for elementary school ministry is going to begin in the next probably two or three weeks where we are going to redo the Kidmo room. And we're going to prepare it for a new chapter. Uh, and if you are interested, because some have different age groups they're interested in serving in. If you're interested in serving in elementary school ministry, then I would like to hear from you, or Deidre would like to hear from you, and we are hoping by this fall that we'll be able to launch that classroom, similar to what we did before, which is that they will spend some time with us in here, and then they'll spend some time in there um, doing some of their own things. So, uh, that's all stuff that we're headed towards. I'm thankful that you're hanging with us during this transitional period. It is kind of weird. We're taking this time through the summer to talk about Rooted because this is important stuff. And as I've mentioned, and I don't want to dwell on, the state of the church is is also in transition. Not, I mean, Journey, as I guess you could say, is with every other church that's in transition, but I mean by and large in our nation is in transition. And part of our ability to navigate that transition is to know really what we believe, what is this really all about, and a lot of times we get that wrong. Now, I wanted to do this particular uh, day today because when we talk about the good news, we miss it, what he's really talking about a lot of times. I grew up in a very belief-heavy culture. You need to believe the right things. And I grew up in a denomination that did a lot of fighting about having the right beliefs. And the problem in those kinds of scenarios, if you came up in that kind of a system, is you can believe all the right things and still be as empty as you can possibly be. Belief by themselves is not enough. Now, when we began to talk about, well, what is the good news? Today in our context of Jesus coming back from the dead, we tend to think, well, we believe that Jesus rose from the dead and he should be our Lord and Savior and that's how we are saved. But yet we have a lot of people who say they've done that that are right now walking away from faith. Why is that? So part of it is how we're rooted in our faith. I want to share with you a bigger picture. Last week we did big picture. I'm not repeating last week. But I want to continue to help you to see the big picture of what the Bible is about. Because most people really never read their Bible outside of their favorite passages or their favorite verses. I remember I grew up believing, I need to know the New Testament, but the Old Testament doesn't really matter anymore because Jesus came. Which is absolutely not true, by the way. The Old Testament gives us all of the rootedness for us to understand the New Testament, and when we cut off the Old Testament, we really miss a lot of what Jesus was trying to say and what Jesus was trying to do. So I want to share that with you. I'm not going to read through all of these verses that I just read on the video with you, 
But I will say one of the problems we have when we talk about the spreading of the good news is what exactly are we spreading? And we turn to verses like this where Paul says, how beautiful are the feet of those who are, are bringing good news, which we have all assumed, and I assumed for a good part of my life as a Christian, that that meant Jesus died on the cross for your sins so that you could be given, forgiven for your sins and you could go to heaven one day when you die. Now that in a nutshell is the way I would say a majority of Christians today see the gospel. But is that the good news he's talking about? And the problem that this raises is that he's quoting two Old Testament prophets who are not talking about Jesus at all when they say how beautiful are the feet of someone who's bringing good news, using the same language and the same word that would be translated into the Greek to mean good news or evangelism or the gospel, all words that can be translated into that same phrase. So what is the good news that Isaiah is talking about? What is the good news that Nahum is talking about? What is the context in which they're sharing it? And that will point us to a bigger story that Isaiah, Nahum, and Paul are all pointing to the same place, but talking about completely different events. So in order to do that, I'm going I'm to try to move quickly uh, since we have so many kids in here and they, their attention span is not that great. Even, <coughs> even if they weren't in here, I could not adequately cover what I want to share with you today. So my hope is that you're going to leave and you're going to go, wow, that's really interesting. I need to look into that. That's what I hope you'll do when you leave. Now, I'm probably going to put this together in a longer podcast with some more visuals so you can follow me more clearly. For now, let's just dive in and let's see where we go. As we look at Romans 10:14, I always thought these beautiful feet of the good news was about Jesus and the feet belonged to missionaries. Maybe some of you believed that too. I thought these were the people God really loves because they take the gospel to the places where no one else really wants to go. They are sacrificing and they are doing great things. And so the beautiful feet are missionaries. Some people would say, well, the beautiful feet are people who proclaim the gospel, which would be preachers or someone who goes out on the street and proclaims the gospel. Or if you go to an area of the city in which there are no churches and you plant a church, that's who he's talking about. But that's not who Isaiah or Nahum is talking about. So if we understand Paul's quoting them, what does all of this mean? So there is this sub-narrative that runs throughout and that we talked about last week, that there is a family that God chose to work through. This family was the family of Abraham, who eventually became a nation called Israel. And he chose to work through them, and at the same time, they continually messed it up, which gives me hope for myself, because God didn't give up on them, and I tend to mess things up too. Anyone else have that problem? Yeah, me. I do. Me and Leslie do. Nobody else does. So either you guys are already asleep, or you're way better Christians than I am. But the reality is, is they were constantly messing up. They were constantly trying to do their own thing, and that bigger narrative was this that we talked about last week. God wants you to partner with him and you can live a life like that which was in Eden. Not exactly, and it won't look like that, but he's trying to restore us to what we originally were created to be. But he gave us the option to do life on our own. Don't. Now, Israel constantly 
tried to recreate themselves. Some ways they did that was they said, God, you're not enough of a leader for us. We want to lead ourselves. We need a king. And he said, you don't need a king. All you need is me. And they said, oh, but we need a king. Everybody else has a king. We need a king. He said, okay, but I'm going to pick that king. And so he picked Saul. And then he picked David. And each time their king came by, they would follow God for a while, and then they would mess up. Saul never turned back, and so God took a kingship away from him. David messed up royally, but he repented, and he came back. And God said, well, then I can work with you. And he restored him, and he restored the kingdom through him. Then Solomon came, and Solomon, he was supposed to be the wisest man who ever lived outside of Jesus. And yet he decided, you know what I need? I need a whole bunch of wives. Like, I need a bunch of them. I need more than any man has ever had before. And this same man who's supposed to be the wisest man in the world also wrote a book literally about being depressed (laughs) called Lamentations. So the same man who's so wise has it all, was the wealthiest king of Israel, says at part of Lamentations, You can have everything and you can feel like you have nothing at the same time because he turned away from how God had taught him. Now, this goes on and on and on in a bigger picture in the nation of Israel, just like you and I do in our own lives when we follow Jesus. And then all of a sudden we say, Jesus, you stay in the closet. I'm going to take care of this myself. And life tends to get hard. So they did that over and over and over again until finally God turns them over to Babylon and they go into exile which is really the last part of the Old Testament and will end at a, the Old Testament literally ends at a point where they're starting to return to Jerusalem their home and yet everything is still in shambles and they're waiting for this new king to come and rescue them and help them <coughs> excuse me finally be what they hope to be as a sovereign nation that's really a lot of the story of the Old Testament told to you in about 3 minutes Now, there's a bigger story that's being told throughout all of this. Both Isaiah and Nahum are talking about the same event. Paul is talking about a different event. But all three talk about the good news at a very difficult time in their lives. So what is this good news? The central theme of the Bible is that moving from home into exile and back to home again. This is the gospel. Now, we don't think of it in these terms because it's easier to think about Jesus died on the cross. I believe that. I trust him. I'll go to heaven. But that's really not what the bigger story that we see throughout the Old and New Testaments is. It's really a people who are at home who are now in exile and who are trying to return home again. Now, what does it mean to be in exile? Have you ever been at a time in your life in which you sat there and you thought, I have it all together. I have a job. I have a family. Things are going pretty well. But life doesn't feel right. You ever feel like, I've got all the things I'm supposed to have, but something's missing. That's what it feels like to be in exile. Or do you ever feel like you're in a place and you just don't fit in with anyone else? That's also a feeling of exile. And if Jesus were to use different language than he used, he would say something akin to this. He said, follow me, all of you who feel that you are in exile, and I will give you a home. Which is why we have language like Deidre just shared, 
which by the way, I do want to point out, Charlotte was crying at you and not at me that time, which I find is a big win today, because normally it's me who causes her to cry. So it was your fault this time. And I am sorry. I had to get that in, get it on, on video, let everybody know. But Jesus would have said that. He said things like, all who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. He could just as easily have said, all of you who feel like this world is not your home, come to me and I will make you at home. I will adopt you into my family. You will be my sons and my daughters. You will be the brothers and sisters of Jesus. Because you'll have a home with me. Now, you may be thinking, Mark, that's kind of weird. I don't know where you get that. So let me just do very quickly how I get that. We begin, as we mentioned last week, Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created. It was all good. Adam and Eve were in the garden. It was all good. God said, you're going to manage this. You're going to help this grow. You're going to make this better. You're going to name everything. You're going to make sure everything is, is doing well. But here's one thing I don't want you to do. There's, a tree, there's two trees in this garden. Don't eat from either one of them. One of them is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One of them is the tree of eternal life. Don't do eat from either tree And you know how that story goes. At the end of that story, what happens to Adam and Eve? They are at home in the Garden of Eden, and now they are exiled. You will leave. Angel stands at the gate to the Garden of Eden with a flaming sword that no one will ever be able to pass. We ourselves don't even exactly know where it is, even though there are geographic boundaries in the the Old Testament that we do recognize, and some we don't. They were in exile. After they go into this exile, things begin to fall apart. And Adam and Eve, they have kids. And they have Cain and they have Abel. And Cain and Abel, if you remember that story, is a story of terrible sibling sibling rivalry where Cain finally kills Abel. And Cain is cast out and said he has gone to the land of Nod, east of Eden, which... The nod literally means wandering, the land of wandering, and is told, you will not have a home. You will wander for the rest of your life, because now Cain was not just exiled from the Garden of Eden, he's now exiled from his family and is going to wander. So what does Cain do? He starts a family. He picks a part of the land of Nod, and he says, I'm setting down roots. I no longer have a home, so I will create a home. And he names that city Enoch after his son, and he says, this will now be my home, which is the picture of what sin actually is. I reject the home God has for me, and I will create my own. Now, there's an interesting connection here because this city is in the what is the modern-day area of Iraq and will become eventually the nation of Babylon in which Israel will eventually be exiled into after God says, you continue to reject me, I remove my protection from you. They were overtaken and the Babylonian exile begins in the very place by the very people that Cain established before the flood. Because Cain said, I will create a home apart from God, which is what we do when we reject God. I want to create an existence where I don't need God. 
but it is utterly still empty. This is what we struggle with in the world. This is where feelings of exile come in. When we try to make a home for ourselves, we try to be the king of our castle or we try to be the center of our world. Uh, If I am not in God's home, then I will create my own and I will define it on my terms and it will be my reality. And to this day, that's one of our greatest struggles is the redefining of who I am because I want to be in charge of my own home. I don't want to be a part of God. So we have already two examples of exile that are happening. Now God rescues them from this exile, and this is what happens in the book of Exodus. And, and he, he raises up Moses, and he says, you're going to take my people and you're going to set them free. You're go- I'm going to take you to a land that is going to be your home promised land flowing with milk and honey and i will be with you and i will be your god and i will establish you as my people i am making for you a new home and when it's time to go into this new home they say oh it's too hard there's people already there they got big cities and god says i'm going to be with you but because you're not following me i'm not going to let you go into this home for a while so they wandered in the desert Finally, they say, we're ready. And interestingly, the ready time was when everyone who had rejected God's leading into the promised land had died, save two people. (laughs) And they took the land with great military strategy, one of them being, let's take a bunch of torches, let's put some pots on them. Here's what we're going to do to overthrow this big city. We're going to break the pots and we're going to yell really loud and then it's going to be all over. And that's exactly what happened, according to the Old Testament. And they took the promised land. And God said, I will be with you. You are no longer in exile. This is now your home. But follow me. And those two commands he had given them in the garden, he now has spread out to 10, and which now spreads out into the Deuteronomical code and the Levitical code and how they're going to live their lives following God now. And consistently they stop following and hard times come until finally God gives them up to exile again and they lose their home in the promised land. They're exiled to Babylon. And it is this time that Isaiah says in, in Isaiah 52, 7, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. And the good news Isaiah is saying is there's going to be a time you're going to get to go back home. Because when Isaiah wrote that, they were still in exile. The good news is when they come back home. Nahum, about 100 years later, 100, 150 years later, Nahum then writes of the fulfillment of that calling, that foretelling in which Isaiah had given, when he actually says, how beautiful are the feet who are bringing good news because those feet were coming to say, Assyria has conquered Babylon and King Cyrus has said, we can go home again. So the good news was the fact that we get to go back home. We get to go back to Israel. We get to go back to Jerusalem. And yet when they got back there, most of the rest of the Old Testament is basically saying how hard things are. The wall is destroyed until Nehemiah eventually comes to King Artaxerxes and says, I need to go restore the walls around the city. My people are being picked off by rebels and people who are coming, but tribes and different powers that are still destroying them and they can't defend themselves. I need to go build the wall. They're back from the exile, but they're still not home. They're still not safe. 
King Artaxerxes says, okay, I'm going to not only do that, I'm going to let you go back and do that. I'm going to actually finance it. And then we follow their stories again in which these, these, these times of saying we are at home and we are with God and we want to follow God's way because that's what ultimately it means to be home, returning to Eden, only to then turn away to idols and to the warring group's gods and hope that it would help them. So they began, the prophets began saying, we're still in exile, we're still not home. But another one is coming. And ultimately, this other one is going to return us home, and that other one is the Messiah, who is Jesus. Jesus comes to ultimately restore us to the home in which God created us to have. So this is the story of the good news. It doesn't mean that the death, burial, and resurrection is not the good news. That is what the New Testament says is the good news that we are to share. But the really good news is this. We're going back home. We're not feeling empty anymore. We're not feeling like we don't belong anymore, even though we don't belong in this world. Jesus said this over and over and over again in lots of different ways. Jesus didn't try to remove Roman rule. He showed them the deeper problem of exiles in their lives. Jesus said there is a way home in John 14, 6. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is a way home. Jesus also said that our home is not of this world. He said, my kingdom, talking to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. In which he's saying, there's another home for my people than Israel, than Rome, than any geographic place on this globe my kingdom is not of this world i'm taking them to another home jesus also said that if we're going to follow him that means we're going to be wanderers and that's why we still don't feel completely at home even today with jesus you will be wanderers he told those who would follow him I do not even have a place in this world to lay my head because this is not my home. And if you follow me, this will not be your home and you will be a wanderer just like I am a wanderer. This is the story of following Jesus. Now we live in a time, and I I grew up in a time where praxis or the practice of following Jesus was very selective in what we did. Like, to follow Jesus meant you go to church, and to follow Jesus meant you brought a Bible, and the go, to follow Jesus meant you, you tithe to the church, and follow Jesus meant you went to Sunday school, and follow Jesus meant that at some point you should go somewhere else in the world and tell people about Jesus, preferably someone who's never heard about it, because the Bible says that once every people group has heard about it, Jesus will return, and maybe we can hasten Jesus' return. But yet, serving one another was not really part of 
the praxis. Sacrificing for others was not really part of the praxis. Wanting to be a wanderer was not really part of the praxis, which is where I go to meddling a little bit because we are a people who are looking for our world powers to provide us a home. And Jesus says, they will never provide you a home. You are not of this world. It's interesting how many pastors I've talked to talked about mass exoduses from the last two elections because either A, they weren't Republican enough or B, they weren't Democrat enough leaving the same churches, which we felt here as well. I'm not sure how you cannot be enough of either. But Jesus said, this is not your home. This is not your world. The disciples struggled with him and said, hey, listen, but what about Caesar? Like, this is a pretty big deal in our world. This is our home. And if we're going to live in this home, you know what? We've got we've to give to Caesar what Caesar wants. And so Jesus, what are you saying? That we absolutely should have nothing to do with world powers? And Jesus simply answered this. He dodged the question and answered the question at the same time. He said, give to Caesar what's his. Give to God what's his. Remember, this is not your kingdom. Our kingdom is not of this world. Jesus said we would be wanderers. And the question is, would we choose to end our exile by by following him? I already told you there's no way to unpack all of this in just a few minutes, and so I'm not going to try to unpack it all. If you leave today going, hmm, what does it look like to be an exile in this world? It does mean that we don't fit in. And when we choose to be a part of a kingdom that's not of this world, we don't fit into the kingdom of this world. But this is also how we understand joy because we now have a home even if some people don't like us. They can steal our happiness, but they can't steal our joy because our joy is bigger than our occasional circumstances because our joy ultimately is in this. I have a home with Jesus, and one day I'm going to be with him forever. I was talking to some friends, and this week we have a group of pastors and ministers that meet together. Tracy's in this group with me. Um, I am going to give him credit, though I told him I wouldn't give him credit. I was stealing it for myself. Uh, Pastor Allison from Mission Red Bank, which is an Anglican church just down the road, is part of our group. We were talking about the gospel and how we screw this up time and time again. There's so many verses we mess up. He called it incantationism. I've never heard it before, but it is it is this verse, Romans 10:9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I can't tell you how many times I've shared that with somebody. He said, that's really incantationism. It's more akin to witchcraft than it is to the gospel. And I was like, what? (laughs) That he's right, because we feel as if this is some formula in which we say these words, and now we get to go to heaven. That's more of an incantation. You can't just confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and be saved. That is not what Jesus ever said, even though this is technically correct. Because saying with your mouth that Jesus is Lord means a whole lot more than the words that come off your tongue. 
And to saying that we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead means a lot more than something we would write down on a belief statement. It means it reorganizes our entire life that this man died on the cross, this God-man died and rose again, and my whole life will change because of it. That's why we have people who believe all the right things and they're the meanest people on the face of the planet. That's why Christians can commit some of the biggest atrocities you've ever seen, and yet our doctrine is strong because they miss the big picture. They miss what this is all about. We love John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have the eternal life. But what does it mean to believe in him? See, if we go back and we understand the beautiful feet of those who bring the good news and we understand the good news is not an incantation. The good news is not a set of beliefs. The good news is... We are a people in exile, and Jesus came back to bring us home. And when we're home, we're different. This is the good news. This is what it looks like to grow deep and to, to live strong. I'm going to unpack this further, not today. But I think it's so crucial that we understand what our faith is really all about. And you who are growing up in the South, like myself, we have simplified it way beyond what it can be simplified to. It's more beautiful than we give it credit. It's more haunting than we want to admit. The implications are greater than we ever will tell anyone if they're interested in faith. Because this changes us. We become different that emptiness is different. I am all the time in scenarios in which I feel I don't fit, and yet I fit because I am at home with God, even if I don't fit with a group of people. There is never a moment that I feel wholly and totally alone. Because even if I feel alone based on human standards, I, have, I never feel that God has abandoned me because I have found a home with Him. And that home gives me hope, and that home gives me joy, and that home helps me navigate COVID, and that home helps me navigate this weird transitional period we're in. It helps me navigate when our kids are at different stages of life. It helps me navigate when Deidre and I are at odds with each other. It helps me navigate when I want to give up after watching the news for about five hot minutes. Because I'm at home with the one who brought me back out of exile and I am thankful not to be in exile any longer. This is why loving each other is so important. How do we better demonstrate what it means to no longer be in exile, but to be at home than with other people who are also now at home saying, you belong with me. Jesus said, this is so important. This is the very thing that people are going to look at you and say, those people know Jesus. Because look at the way they make a home for each other. I'm not actually changing anything probably any of you believe. Maybe I'm just reframing it to help you to see it in a bigger way. But I believe this is important. Next week, I have another story for you. and Another way we're going to process this bigger story. And I hope that you'll continue to stay with me through the summer as long as you're able. 
One of the way, reasons we're taking the tact on our programming that we are and that we're not rushing to provide the best programming and then doing the best marketing campaign in order to get as many people here is because we want this to be true and to be real. We don't want you to find a good marketing campaign. We want you to find a home that you have with each other and with God. I appreciate your patience as we work through this. When we do Bible studies, our Bible studies are not simply meant to give us information. It's where we work things out and we figure things out and we struggle back and forth and we say, hey, I I don't know if I believe that. I don't know how I apply that. I don't know what that means in the bigger picture. That's what Bible study is when we get with other people. It is growing in knowledge. But it's growing in praxis and practice. That's where we're headed. So that this can be real. Because it is my belief that there's a whole lot of people, even in our churches, that are still in exile. They haven't yet found a home. That's where we're going. That's what it means to be rooted As we shared with joy, happiness is a solid. Joy is a liquid. Joy fills in all the nooks and crannies of our life. This is what being at home does for us too. It gives us the framework to deal with struggle and hurt, discouragement and depression. It gives us a framework to not only understand it, but to work through it with our Savior. And it makes Jesus way more than just the guy who died so we could go to heaven. I'm pretty certain and most of most of southern culture's ideas of heaven most of them could stay fully intact if jesus wasn't there and yet that's all of what heaven is we were once exiles and because of jesus we have found a home our roots cannot truly grow deep and strong until we have decided to end our exile by fully following Christ. Now, I would like to be able to say I have found the answer and I never struggle with this. There are days I flirt with my own exile again because I feel like God just doesn't get me, you know? I could do a better job. That's really what I want to happen. I don't think God, I think God's saying no, so I, but I can make this happen. This is what much of our struggle in the world is today. We're going to make it happen our way And it ends up being empty. We were in exile. But now we're home. Father, I pray that as we move on from this place, and I'm just, I'm thankful for all these kids in this room who probably didn't understand a thing of what I just said, but let us demonstrate with our lives and with our relationships so that they grow up seeing it in action. Father, you've given us an opportunity not only to follow you, but to know you. Just like the Israelites, we often turn away. Just like Adam and Eve, we often turn away. I am so thankful that you are still working to bring us home. I pray for those that may be in this room or watching online, and they're struggling, feeling like they themselves are right now in exile, alone. No one understands. No one is with them. They need to find a home with you. Help us to show them what that really looks like. Father, let your word become alive for us. 
Your Holy Spirit work powerfully through us. And let us be the church you always called us to be and demonstrate the gospel as it really is. It does lead us to freedom. The good news is you're bringing us home. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.